HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're talking uh, antibiotic resistance. What a surprise! But <laughs> but I actually have uh, sort of one of the definitive uh, voices in journalism uh, who has been documenting that. Today we're going to be talking with Marin McKenna. Marin is an independent journalist uh, specializing in public health, global health, and food policy. She is a contributing writer for Wired and also for the National Geographic food writing platform, The Plate, and she writes for Scientific American, Nature, Slate, The Guardian, The Atlantic, and other publications in the United States and Europe. She is the author of the award-winning books Superbug, about the global rise of antibiotic resistance, and Beating Back the Devil, about the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and is currently working on a book about food production. She's a senior fellow of the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University and a research affiliate at MIT. So do I bring you the goods, people, or what? Tell me about it. I mean, this is the woman. So, um, Marin, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, I want to start uh, just by saying that um, I was recently on what's called a pork crawl. Um, and this is uh, one of these events that is sponsored by the National Pork Board. And, uh, you know, they take you around to a lot of restaurants and you um, check out pork dishes. And it was really fun, fabulously well organized. I have nothing but good things to say, except for um, at some point during the trip, I started talking about antibiotic resistance in uh, protein or, you know, in livestock with one of the leaders of the trip who shall remain nameless and um i could see his face like shut down like a steel trap and you know he basically shunned me for the rest of the trip and so as i was leaving the next day i you know thanked him profusely for the fabulous trip etc etc and i said i hope i didn't make you angry when i brought up this uh, antibiotic resistance issue and he said no 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 i have to work with fruitcakes like you all the time and i was just like okay A fruitcake, eh? <laughs> we'll just see about that, homie. So um, after this show, I'm planning on sending him the link. So anyway, 
<laughs> Marin, that's what we're facing here. We are facing that kind of entrenched attitude on the part of the livestock industry. And I really, I don't understand why in the face of all of the scientific research, which you are about to tell us about, uh, that suggests, uh, if not completely confirms, the existence of superbugs that, I hate calling them that, but um, superbugs that are a result of antibiotic use in uh, livestock. Why is that still even debated in today's uh, meat production circles? But anyway, we're going to talk about that. So um, first of all, let's talk, let's get a little bit of a history of um, antibiotic use in animal agriculture just to kind of set the stage here. Can you do that for me? Sure. So we have to remember when we talk about antibiotic use in meat production, and that's really what we're talking about the most. I mean, antibiotics are used routinely in some in some agriculture that doesn't have to do with raising livestock, it's, they are used for certain fruits in particular, for some particular yep. bacterial diseases of fruit, apples and pears, for instance, and also grapes, I believe, and some citrus. But the, the largest by far is that they are used routinely in meat animals, and that's primarily cattle, hogs, and chicken probably to a lesser extent in some other species, but those are the big three in terms of what we grow and eat in the United States and really, you know, in most of the, the industrialized world. So the, the antibiotic era itself, it's hard for us to remember this because all of us have been alive just within the antibiotic era, but it only starts really after World War II. Uh-huh. Penicillin is first identified in 1928, but it doesn't actually get made into a drug that can be used until 1940, and it's not put out on the market until 1944. Wow. The other drugs that kind of together um, make the sort of jumpstart the antibiotic era all come out between 1944 and 1948. So really suddenly, at the end of World War II, suddenly these almost magical compounds enter society and really change history. Almost at the same time that they're being used for the first time in humans, they get used for the first time in animals. And the way that that happens is an almost accidental discovery at one of the pharmaceutical firms that's developing one of those first antibiotics. At the end of World War II, there was a lot of concern about fragility of the food supply, both because there'd been, as a result of the devastation of the war, there had been crop failures and failures in meat production in Europe and in the U.S., And also within the U.S. industry specifically, there was a lot of excess capacity because the government had encouraged meat producers to really spool up in order to feed the troops. And then with the end of the war, that guaranteed market went away. So there was suddenly a lot more infrastructure, no guaranteed market, and meat production had to sharply cut its costs. And they did that by turning to cheaper, less nutritious feed. So needing to cut costs on the one hand, needing to guarantee supply on the other hand, the industry turned to using antibiotics, and they they found this out via one of the chemists working on one of these first drugs, Uh who decided to feed kind of the leftovers of antibiotic manufacture to an experimental group, actually first of chickens, and after that, the second experimental group were pigs. And this is essentially money for nothing, because the, the leftover mash and brine from making the antibiotic was going to be disposed of. Right. He discovered when he fed it to these experimental animals that they gained weight much faster than animals that were just being given the regular feed. And since that seemed to be a benefit with no cost, it became incredibly popular incredibly quickly. Yeah. And that, that 
that sense of benefit with no cost has really followed this practice through its 65 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing, of course, is that there are costs. It's just that they're what an, an economist would call external costs. They're not actually a cost to the people taking the action, to the producers actually using the antibiotic or, or the, the corporations forcing them to. The costs are, are sometimes literally downstream in surface and groundwater or they're off the property in antibiotic-resistant bacteria moving away from farms, or, and they're in consumers who eat the meat. Um, I'm going to roll you back for just a second there about the cost issue, because one of the things that um, I debated with uh, my friend on the pork crawl, but I have I have heard many times over uh, at the many uh, conferences that I've been to regarding this matter that have been held by the uh, meat industry, and that is, why would we overuse antibiotics? They're very expensive. So, I mean, it may have started out as something that uh, was basically money for nothing, um, but it, it did definitely evolve into into a major, it had to have evolved into a major industry for both pharmaceutical companies and the feed companies where uh, all of these products are, or these antibiotics are mixed into feed or water and then um, pumped into the livestock. So there is a cost associated with it. And I've always been curious and wonder if you can uh, answer this. Um, I've always been curious, you know, just what it does cost to add that growth promoting dose of antibiotics and, um, what they would lose in terms of uh, the ratio between muscle feed to muscle, if you know what I mean. Um, sure. So this is complicated, and and it's complicated because there's some rhetoric used that, and sometimes I think it's innocent, and sometimes I think it's misdirection. So, yes, this is a big market because these antibiotics are sold in so much, in such very large amounts. The amount of antibiotic used in the United States each year in animals is, is just under 30 million pounds. Right. So even if any individual drug dose doesn't cost very much, that's still a lot of income for the veterinary pharma companies. Yeah. Now, that they are making a lot of income does not necessarily mean that any individual farmer or even any vertical corporation is necessarily paying individually that much in cost because the drugs that are used for this process we're talking about, growth promotion of encouraging animals to put on muscle more quickly, those drugs are used in tiny, tiny doses, mm-hmm. just like, like, like ounces per ton. Mm-hmm. So that's not a lot of drug. Now, when they say why would we misuse antibiotics? They're expensive. What I imagine they might be speaking of, if they're not just completely misdirecting, is <laughs> that there are other use, ways to use antibiotics, and that is to actually take care of animals that are sick. Sure. When a herd actually has illness in it or an individual animal is ill, of course you treat that animal. No one, I, I know of no one who says that we should not do that. Of course they do that. Right. And, and when you give a treatment-sized dose, to an animal, that's going to be more expensive. But I have here on my desk a two-pound bag of tetracycline uh-huh. that I ordered over the Internet just to see if I could, and oh, it wow. cost me $13. Oh, so wow. that doesn't seem to me like a very expensive drug. No. And when you, re- and when you rec- recognize that that, that two-pound bag for $13 is, is probably going to, uh, you know, add X number of pounds of flesh at X number of dollars per pound, uh, it seems like a very small cost indeed. 
for sure. Another thing to remember is that almost all of the drugs that are being used in this manner have been generic for a very, very, very long That's time. Right. Yeah. This is not, these are not the new drugs that we hear about, the new antibiotics that cost $1,000 a dose or a cancer drug that costs you, you know, the, the price of your house to take it for right. a month. These are things that, again, in a different way, are almost money for nothing. Um, yeah. They're like, you know, Chrysler making Fifth Avenues. Maybe, maybe they only sell 100 of them a year if they even sell them at all, but it's pure profit because they amortize the cost of the machinery a very long time ago. Right. Well, God, Marin, you are just wonderfully uh, adept at explaining this stuff because you just broke that down really well. Um, so let's move on for a second. Um, last year, uh, there was lots of hullabaloo over the uh, newly or recently enacted, although they had come up with these guidelines, I think, in 2011, but uh, guidances number 209 and 213 on the use of antibiotics in um, for growth promotion. In other words, uh, changing the labeling and pharmaceutical companies agreed to change their labeling so that these drugs were no longer used for, antibi- for growth promotion. And uh, moreover, um, they would be overseen by veterinarians uh, when they were used at all. So let's break those guidelines guidances down and uh, have a little chat about that. Sure. So the first thing (laughs) to know is that this, first let's break down, let's just sort of define our terms and talk again for a moment about the different ways that antibiotics are used. So if you envision it as a continuum, the use of antibiotics in meat animals, on the one end, there's this issue we just talked about of actually taking care of animals that are sick. So that's called treatment. Right. And on the other end, there's this practice that dates back to the late 1940s of growth promotion, which is using tiny, tiny doses in very large amounts of feed for this somewhat perplexing ability to, to improve nutrition and encourage the animals to put on more muscle mass. And in the middle, there's a sort of wishy-washy category that often gets called disease prevention and control, right. which are doses that are bigger than growth promotion, but still very much smaller than actual treatment that protect animals raised in very concentrated conditions from the effect of those conditions, from from infecting each other with bacteria, from getting sick. So it's preventing illness. Now, the, the, the sort of poster child for the misuse of antibiotics has always been growth promotion because it seemed the most egregious. And there have been efforts in the United States and going back more than 30 years to try to, to eliminate this. Back as far as the 1970s, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, attempted to withdraw the licenses it gave in the 1950s for key antibiotics, penicillin and several forms of tetracycline, to be used as growth promoters. They never got the opportunity to do that. The, the, the wonky details are they posted a thing in the Federal Register called a notice of opportunity for a hearing. And at that hearing, they were going to ask the manufacturers to show cause why those licenses should not be withdrawn. They never, get to, they never got to have that hearing. Mm-hmm. And, and so finally, a couple of years ago, they realized that, or they confronted, the FDA confronted that the political interference on this process, which had been persistent over decades, was never going to go away, and they were going to have to take another route to banning growth promoters or to to removing growth promoters from meat production, which is something that Europe did essentially without fight, first in the 1990s and then much more broadly in 2006. Growth promotion is now completely illegal in the European Union. So what the FDA decided to do instead, rather than... uh, follow a regulatory process, which, since they are a regulatory agency, would be their first um, step, and that's what they tried in the 70s, they decided instead to ask for 
a vol- adherence to a voluntary program. And that's what they created at the end of last year with these guidances, as you say, 209 and 213. 209 sets out the principles. 213 is the one that sort of operationalizes mm-hmm. 209. And, and what they do is they ask not, not the users but the makers, not the farmers, but the veterinary pharma manufacturers. Merck and Aleco, people like that, yeah. Exactly. To change the labels on their drugs so that the labels no longer say to be used for growth promotion. The idea being that then it effectively becomes an off-label use. And um, now I think those of us who spend time around human medicine, as I do, uh, in the other parts of my journalistic life, know that off-label use happens all the time. But the, the, the FDA felt like this was their best possible avenue to getting some control over growth promoter use, is to make it no longer, effectively no longer legal to use drugs for growth promoters. And in a second piece of regulation, creating greater control by individual veterinarians over the use of antibiotics on farm properties by requiring a prescriptions for anything, not for growth promotion because that's off the table, but for the other uses. Like disease now, prevention. The great, the, and, and treatment, but again, no one's arguing with treatment. Right. Now, the, the great sort of hole through the middle of this that people who work on this issue as activists are very concerned about is that mushy middle category of disease prevention and control. That is not explicitly covered by 209 and 213. There is good evidence in Europe where they instituted these bans years ago that the first response when growth promoters go away is to move the, the same sort of use up into the disease prevention and control category to essentially just kind of move the goalposts. And so activists are very concerned that that's what's going to happen in the United States, that, in fact, usage by ton won't really change, that that the letter of the regulation will be respected, but not actually the spirit of the regulation. Now, the industry says, of course, and have, you know, stood up and said that, um, no, that is not going to happen, that they Mm -hmm. understand it would be illegal, and furthermore, that the doses that the drugs are approved for that for, for disease prevention and control are so different in the amount that, in fact, it, that just wouldn't happen. I actually heard a major spokesperson for the veterinary pharma industry say this at an FDA meeting a couple of months ago. Mm. Whether that, in fact, is going to happen or not, I think, you know, only time will tell. And at the, the FDA's uh, reporting of the amount of antibiotics used in in farming, essentially, in livestock production, lags by a couple of years. We just now got the data through 2012. That was released a week or two ago. And we are now almost at the end of, of 2014. So the data as to what happens in 2014 may not be out, for, which is the first year that these these new regulations apply, mm-hmm. may not be out for several years, which, which is a lot of time in which to behave in a mushy manner if you want yeah. to do that. <laughs> and also what the FDA uh, uh, observed in that report uh, is that antibiotics use went up 17% between 2008 and 2012. Right, so, 2008 being the first year in which they were they empowered were... To, to collect this data from the pharma companies at all. Right. Yeah, so the trend has been, the trend has been very clear that it's, it's unusual for 
companies to back away from the use of these drugs unless they are compelled to. Because from their point of view, again, because they don't have to, to deal with any of the external costs, uh, of which it, there are very many, mm-hmm. from a narrow economic point of view, using these drugs makes sense. Sure. It allows you to get animals through production faster, right. and it protects, it gets more animals through production faster because it protects them from the conditions in which they are being produced. So long as you don't have to answer for the externalities of what you're doing, mm-hmm. that makes, it makes a great deal of sense to do that. So for companies to voluntarily give it up, it, it isn't an economically rational thing to ask. Mind yeah. you, almost every, comp- almost every major meat corporation at this point has created a minimal antibiotics or antibiotic-free or organic and therefore technically, for the most part, antibiotic-free line label within its, its family of labels because they understand that this is something that consumers are increasingly asking for. But mm-hmm. they've done that while still holding on to antibiotics for the majority of their production. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that interesting, too, because, I mean, obviously, if you can create a whole life, for example, Harvest Land, which I think is a, a Tyson product, um, you know, if you can create an entire uh, model like that and have it sell well, and they certainly charge enough for it, and clearly people are buying it enough to make this a viable economic option, uh, you know, why wouldn't you want to go the whole hog and be out in front of the industry and say, hey, look, you know, we're just phasing it out altogether. I mean, some of them, let's just jump to the fact that uh, Purdue recently announced, um, and in fact, we did a program with Gail Hansen from Pew Charitable Trust about this, but Purdue announced that they would no longer use gentamicin in their uh, egg hatcheries. And uh, and then I, as I was preparing for this program, I saw that Cargill announced in July that they were phasing out uh, antibiotics as growth promotants in their turkey uh, industry. So do you think that there is more of a trend toward this? I mean, are we looking at companies that are starting to take some stewardship more seriously, or do you think those guys are kind of outliers? I thought what Purdue did was really interesting, um, because what they, when they made that announcement a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. they said several things. The first was that they were no longer going to use any kind of antibiotics in their egg hatcheries, and th- those are the hatcheries that hatch the, egg, the, the eggs that become meat birds. Right. So um, what used to happen and what still happens in some companies is that the, the, the birds are vaccinated while they are still in the shell against yep. a particular disease that can really wipe out a flock. And because that vaccination punctures the, the literal physical barrier that protects the developing chick from infection, they would give a little dose of antibiotic at the same time. There is some very good research that shows that that particular, the resistance created by, in bacteria, by exposure to that dose of antibiotic stays with the chicken's lifelong. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when, sometimes when bacteria, um, uh, develop resistance against an anti- in response to exposure to an antibiotic. If the antibiotic isn't around anymore, they shed the resistance quickly because there's a kind of what a, a microbiologist would call fitness cost. It, it, mm-hmm. That extra DNA lumbers the bacteria in some way. But this particular kind of resistance to gentamicin just hangs on and hangs on. There's no fitness cost to it. So Purdue said they weren't going to do that anymore. But in making that announcement, they also said, oh, and by the way, we have been working for a number of years now in removing from our flocks any, the use of any antibiotics that are significant in human medicine. And what they are only using instead is a class of antibiotics that, because they are not used in humans, 
whether or not resistance develops is considered to be less important. And they also actually have completely antibiotic-free flocks as well now where yeah. they use um, other what they would consider antibacterial chemicals that are not, in fact, antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And these are all to protect animals against particular diseases that develop in the chicken houses. Right. So Purdue was really kind of out there, and obviously Tyson followed very quickly afterward. Now, um, the question, sort of the larger question is, why is all this happening? And I think that what I see happening is that the, the market is moving the companies much more than the regulators can. Here, here's yeah. my best example is that I, I live in Atlanta, which is pretty much the, you know, in the heart of big chicken in the United States. Yep. And one of the sort of best expre- and most famous expressions of big chicken in the U.S. is Chick-fil-A, yeah. the utterly cult chicken, fried chicken sandwich um, closed on Sundays, uh, you know, highly um, founded by a highly religious family chain that's all over the southeast and now in the rest of the world as well. Yeah. We, no one really knows what Chick-fil-A puts on their sandwiches, but everyone assumes it's something addictive because they're fantastic. <laughs> and and there chain. are also a lot of them. Chick-fil-A is a very, I couldn't, couldn't quote, quote numbers, but Chick-fil-A is a very large volume buyer of, yeah. of parts of chicken. So this past summer, or actually, I'm sorry, last spring, Chick-fil-A up and announced that they were going to move all their suppliers to being antibiotic-free within five years. Yeah. I think that is really significant because it's, it seems quite clear to me that, that the reason they are doing that is because their customers ask them to. Yeah. Now, I can't say, you know, are Chick-fil-A's customers microbiologists? Are they people who only buy organic chicken? Are they, on the other hand, people who don't even particularly believe in the theory of evolution and aren't really sure whether, whether bacteria develop resistance or not? That just that, that segment of the market knows that if they have a choice between buying chicken raised with antibiotics or without, they would prefer their favorite chicken sandwich come without antibiotics, and, and therefore they moved this company. That, to me, is, is really that's a signpost, I yeah, think, pointing I, to where the marketplace is going. I totally agree. We're going to take a short break here uh, and have a quick sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back with Marin McKenna to talk more about antibiotics in the livestock uh, uh, production model of our, our country. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're on the line today with Marin McKenna, a uh, very well-known journalist who has done enormous work around the issues of antibiotics in uh, livestock, and particularly in poultry. And since we were just talking about Purdue, uh, Chick-fil-A, and Cargill, uh, you know, all phasing uh, antibiotics out of their various production models, uh, can you talk a little bit about your work uh, in terms of... Um, tracing that those antibiotic resistant uh, urinary tract infections that seem to come almost exclusively from poultry? Yeah, this is a really interesting story to me. Thanks for asking. Sure. So, you know, if you trace the, the, 
the history of the use of antibiotics in meat production and, and the history of, kind of what happened afterward, poultry keeps popping up as a really important player. Mm-hmm. First, because that very first experiment was done in chickens. Second, because if you look at the data from, the, from, from when the FDA starts and the CDC start tracking um, foodborne illness and the occurrence of resistant bacteria on food, poultry is a really major player in all of those numbers. Um, chicken breasts are one of the highest... They're either the highest or the second highest meat in terms of carrying antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the federal data. Third, and that's on the exterior. Let's let's be clear here that it's not within the meat itself. If it's a whole muscle, it's on the exterior of the of the flesh. That's correct, and the reason is because um, you know any of these bac- these bacteria, just as with us, reside in the gut. Yeah. And so because they're, they're largely, they're bacteria that are adapted to living in the gut, and that means bacteria like Salmonella and Campylobacter and E. coli. I think everyone's heard of E. coli. Yeah. And so um, they live in the gut. They get affected by the antibiotics that are administered to the animals through their feet or through their water, so traveling through the gut. And then when they come to be slaughtered, for a variety of reasons, largely having to do with just the size of chickens and, and the, the, the way that their anatomy is structured and the, rel- the relative amount of muscle versus gut mass and the way that we, we chill a bunch of chickens all together, it's more, it mm-hmm. seems to be easier for chickens to get contaminated by their own gut contents than it does um, pigs or cows. Right. Now, that, that's... You know, the footnote to that is that there are particular things that you can do with pig meat and cow meat that also causes them to be contaminated. And the best example is grinding up beef to make, you know, ground beef that, that um, is contaminated on the outside and then becomes contaminated in the mix as it's all ground. But, but chickens seem to be uniquely um, uh, sort of just, they show up more as carriers. Mm-hmm. But but those foodborne illnesses were always relatively easy to identify, Salmonella, Campylobacter, E. coli. They, they cause pretty distinctive symptoms. Yes. There is, however, this, this sort of new epidemic, that, or the understanding of it is new, that's been pinpointed by a fairly small group of researchers in, in several different countries at once, in the U.S., in Canada, in various places in Europe, in Australia, a whole bunch of this, this small group are, are working on a puzzling increase in urinary tract infections that have to do with, that are caused by resistant bacteria. And when they look for where those particular bacteria are coming from, look for them in a molecular way, the closest match they find is on chicken meat more huh. than any other aspect of the diet. And when they ask people who have these infections, what, what have you been eating? They do what's called you know, a, a, a food questionnaire. Then, then poultry seems to keep popping up. Why is this important? Well, it's important because urinary tract infections, first, are a really major public health problem. They, they sound like no big deal individually, but there's mm-hmm. six to eight million of them in the United States every year. That's a lot of doctor visits, yeah. a lot of drugs consumed, a lot of downtime from work and lost productivity. And on occasion, urinary tract infections can get much more serious. If you don't treat them, then they work their way back up through the system, to, first to the kidneys, 
Uh-huh. So it becomes a kidney infection or what's technically called pyelonephritis. The kidneys are the organ in the body that filters the blood. Now, mm-hmm. and, and so what happens is that the filtration kind of happens in reverse and the bacteria gets out into the bloodstream. Then it becomes what's called a bloodstream infection. And Jesus. that can be extraordinarily <laughs> serious and possibly deadly. Right. Now, I said that's what happens when the infections are not, not treated or not treated properly. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria in urinary tract infections, almost by definition, are not treated properly. And that's because, and, you know, what woman in her life has not had a urinary tract infection? Right. If there is one, I would like to meet her yeah. because I, wanted, I want some of her luck. Um, is that I want her you DNA. You go to your doctor, you say, I, have, I believe I have a urinary tract infection. They do, you know, sort of the basic dipstick test, and they right. give you the drug that on the formularies that are agreed to by all the major medical societies is the drug that gets given most for urinary tract infections. Right. What, what did not happen in that encounter is that the bacteria got tested for resistance. That's a much more complicated thing to do. It usually is a test that takes a couple of days because you have to actually kind of retrieve the bacteria, grow them, mm-hmm. and test them. And right. so, so all the treatment of UTIs is what's called empirical. It's on the basis of pre-existing evidence. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, though, that empirical treatment doesn't work because of resistance, and then the, at, at the very least, what happens is that women think they're getting infections over and over and over again, but they're actually getting the same infection back. It's never really gone away. And right. the worst that happens is that it moves into the rest of the body and makes people really, really sick. Yeah. Or it just, I mean, just take, I'll tell you the truth, Merritt. I mean, one of the reasons I brought this up is because um, this is particularly uh, common amongst the elderly, I believe. And my own mother uh, suffered horribly for the last several years of her life from an intractable urinary tract infection. In fact, damn near died from not the infection, but from the antibiotics, which affected her gut so badly that she Mm -hmm. was constantly dehydrated and et cetera, et cetera. But my, I mean, I, when I first read your first article about that, my ears really pricked up because I saw not just my mom, but I, I've known other ladies, uh, many of them actually, who now have these intractable infections that will not go away no matter what they do. And it is not as uncommon as, as you know as you would think. In right. fact, the best guess right now, based on really fine-grained molecular evidence, is that maybe ten percent of the urinary tract infections just in the U.S. each year is due to this these swarms of bacteria that are made resistant in animals by antibiotic use. Now, 10%, that doesn't sound like a lot. It's not necessarily something you would put in a headline, but that means 600 to 800,000 illnesses a year, yeah. potentially traceable to antibiotic use in, in meat and especially poultry. Huh. That's something that, you know, if we could take out 10% of lost productivity, 10% of lost work days, 10% yeah. of antibiotics being used inappropriately in the people who are getting the wrong treatments and thereby also increasing resistance, that would be a significant public health benefit. Yeah. Now, uh, in the course of your research, have you discovered uh, you know, enough doctors who are responding to this uh, evolving urinary tract infection uh, resistance and uh, to, regu- to the regular course of drugs? And, and how is that how are they uh, coping with these problems? Yeah, so they're absolutely aware of it. In fact, the major uh, organization that, that uh, is the organizing force for infectious disease physicians for the specialty of, of infectious diseases, a couple of years ago put out a sort of um, guidance statement for ID physicians that said, 
it's really not a good idea anymore to just do empirical treatment of urinary tract infections. You should be aware that resistance is increasing in a kind of unpredictable way, and, and we think you should pay attention to that. The problem with that is that they only probably reached their own adherence, their own members. So uh, right. the, if you are, a, you know, a, a woman who, and you have a urinary tract infection, the first place you go is probably not to an infectious disease specialist, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. GYN, or to, <laughs> right. your, to your primary or your care primary, physician. Yeah. And, you know, and, and women, get, women, women are uniquely vulnerable to UTIs because of the, just the basics of our anatomy. It's also a problem for men for different reasons. They tend to be men who are older. Sometimes it's because they've had prostate biopsies. This is not an exclusively gendered problem, but, but women are, are more Definitely likely the to be the majority of men. the sufferers, yeah. So mm-hmm. you have to have gone through several rounds of unsuccessful treatment before your physician thinks most of the time to either do a resistance check or to send you on to a specialist who might know more about this problem. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the, the knowledge is percolating through the medical community, but as, as I've discovered writing about all kinds of antibiotic resistance for years, one of, the, one of the faults in our particular retail medical system in the United States is that we don't have clear channels for communicating with physicians when new discoveries are made. If you're not an academic researcher and you're not on the staff of a very major healthcare organization, the chances that you can keep up with what's being published in the journals or, and about new, new information in your specialty is really not that great. And that those, those channels are, are really not clear, and getting information to frontline physicians can often really be a problem. Wow. Fascinating, Marin. I had no idea. Um, I want to just, uh, because we only have about, well, we could have 10 minutes or almost 10 minutes, right? Jack, can we have 10 minutes? Okay. Um, I want to get to the why is it has it been so very hard to pin down the relationship between the use of antibiotics in livestock and the emerging resistances in specific foodborne pathogens mm-hmm. that could only it's a come really from good livestock. question and that is the that's that's the the question on which pushback against regulation right. has turned has always been how can you if if we i'm not going to say that anyone from the meat industry ever put it in these terms but 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 i'm going to rephrase it as if show me one case of resistance of, of resistant illness in a human and show me the animal that came from if you can do that then we will have a case that we that right. we can have a, a a standard of evidence that we can work on to reduce this so the problem is, of course, with the way that meat is distributed in this country, mm-hmm. it's extremely difficult to trace one person's illness back to one animal. Mm-hmm. Now, there actually go if you if you reverse that process, if you start with the animal, there actually have been a few unusual and really brave pieces of research that have done just that, that have taken human volunteers, fed them meat that's contaminated, in some cases housed them with the animals that were getting feed that was contaminated, and demonstrated that resistant bacteria show up in the people as a result. Mm-hmm. But those have always been people in experimental conditions, not really in, in truly what an experimenter would call free-living humans. Uh-huh. So, so therefore, and not a big the enough question sample. becomes mm-hmm. sort of a, a question of what's the, what's the preponderance of the evidence? Mm-hmm. Is there enough evidence pointing in this direction, even if it's not an individual experimental result where you, you had your hands on the animal and the human, is, 
is the relationship strong enough, plausible enough, drawn enough times that you can say we are comfortable that this is happening. That is how we decided to, to um, get rid of tobacco in this country, mm-hmm. is that eventually the industry, the industry kept saying, we think more research is needed, and eventually public health and medicine said, no, we think the research is, is strong enough now. We think the connection is strong enough to take a public health regulatory action on. And that, I think, is where we are with, as, as molecular tools for research get better and better, that the, the sort of black box at the center of the transaction between animal and human is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We, we can look into it now with whole genome sequencing in the, a way that wasn't possible before, so that when right. people say, who wanted to, to deny this connection, say, we need more research... Research is now actually able to say, okay, here's your research. Right. Here, here, even without those experimental conditions that, that it is hard to reproduce in a free-living population, here's our demonstration that, in fact, what started in those animals is showing up in those people, and we should do something about it. Right. Well, to that end, uh, and we'll just... Um almost finished with this, and I want to ask you about your book, but um, in September, the president signed an executive order uh, and one uh, about the use of, about increasing the stewardship of antibiotics, both in human medicine and in, in livestock. And so one of the, the clauses uh, was that the, um, that the Food and Drug Administration and uh, Health and Human Services, in coordination with the Department of Agriculture, uh, would continue to take steps to eliminate the use of medically important classes of antibiotics for growth promotion purposes in food-producing animals. That's a pretty narrow... Like, again, they did not address the squishy part, which you talked about earlier in the program, which is the disease prevention piece. And so I was kind of, I was really more than slightly disappointed uh, when well, I read I through think, that you know, executive order. Well, I your was shared by a lot of people and by mm-hmm. me, too. In fact, I, I, I wrote a long post at Wired talking about mm-hmm. analyzing this and looking at what mm-hmm. was really going on. So what we're talking about here is two things. First, there's the, the national strategy against antimicrobial resistance, which was issued by the White House accompanied by an executive order. And the third um, document that went along with that executive order and the national strategy was a long report by the President's Council of Advisors in Science and Technology. That's referred to as PCAST for short. Mm. So that report, which is the, 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 uh, provides the evidence that underpins the thing that the White House did, um, that report was in process for several years. But when it was published just recently, a number of people found it very disappointing that while it had all kinds of very specific granular recommendations for how to beat back antimicrobial, that is antibiotic resistance, in all the the sort of frames of human medicine, whether it's hospital or nursing homes or Mm -hmm. outpatient care or doctor's offices, it was not just weak, but very sort of vague and, and in, in the animal arena, in yeah. every single chapter of the report, when it comes to talking about things that are going on in human medicine, the report and the strategy recommend, not, recommend specific actions and also recommend specific amounts of spending to back up those actions. Then you get to the animal chapter, and suddenly all of that goes away. Amazing. There's only this sort of like, let's monitor and let's look at mm-hmm. it and let's think about it, but there's no specific actions recommended other than what's already going on, and there's no specific spending recommended. So a number of people observed at the time that it's almost as though this chapter got dropped in from somewhere else, because the to- even the sort of the 
the editorial voice of it is very different, and certainly its approach to the problem is very different. And that, in particular, that that difference from the rest of the effort, which which was very belated, and you know, this effort is very welcome to anyone who cares about antibiotic resistance. But the difference between what was was said about human medicine and proposed as, as solutions, and what was said about animal agricultural use and not proposed, that was very striking and, and very disappointing to a lot. Yeah, very. Uh, well, on that cherry note, let's, uh, let's because we only have a couple of minutes, I do want you to give me a, a thumbnail about the book that you're working on and how people can <laughs> learn more about it and you. Thank you. So, so I am working on a book for National Geographic mm-hmm. uh, that is a history of how antibiotics got into agriculture, that is, got into meat production. It will right. be out late 2015 or early 2016. We're not sure yet. And it, it examines had all these these very good intentions that happened from the start of the 1940s as to why people thought antibiotics could help feed the world and all the unintended consequences that flowed from that. And, and I cast the definition of unintended consequences very broadly, not just the emergence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, but really the birth of concentrated meat production because sure. without antibiotics we couldn't hold animals in that those conditions because we have concentrated agriculture we get all kinds of downstream environmental effects we get changes in the structure of the corporations that produce meat we get imbalances in power between those corporations and the labor they hire we get disenfranchisement of entire classes of farmers and meat producers because the corporations because of their new economic heft develop so much more power in the marketplace so i think of antibiotics it's kind of like the wizard behind the curtain. They're wow. the thing that starts all this other change in, in the meat industry happening from the 1940s forward. And the last thing I'll do is I will look at efforts both within major existing corporations and also in, in very small farms around the world to change this process and, and to do things in a new way, which in some cases means going back to quite old forms of farming, but with yeah. new technological tools that make it robust and worthwhile. Absolutely, as they've done in Europe and demonstrated that it works. Uh, well, thank you so much, Marin, for uh, joining me today. This is fantastic. I must say, I, I can't wait to do another program with you. Um, so, and you have a you have a website, correct? Are you? I do. So, people, if people want to know more about this, they can find. Um, I write a lot about this for Wired magazine, yep. where my blog is called Superbug. Um, I also write about some of it at National Geographic on their food writing blog, The Plate. And if they go to my own personal website, which is MarinMcKenna.com. There is a page devoted to some of the research I've been doing and some of the media I've been collecting as a result. Fantastic. Thank you again, and uh, thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery. And thanks, as always, to my engineer, Jack Inslee. We'll see you next week. Uh, Have a great week, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.